Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bill Anzavino, pastor of Christian Assembly Family Church in Ohioville, Pennsylvania. We pray you are challenged in your walk with the Lord through the following teaching. For more information about Christian Assembly Family Church or to subscribe to our free podcasts, please visit us on the web at cafamily.net. My title tonight is Glory in the Cross. And before I get into the introduction, I want to give you an introduction. Is that okay if I give you an introduction to the introduction? As you saw there in many places stated, that during the time of the Roman occupation, there were at least 30,000 Jews that were crucified. If you need a copy of the notes, kindly raise your hand. 30,000. Now, I remember the name of one. His name is Jesus. Can anyone else tell me another name of someone who died by crucifixion before Christ during that time? Anyone? You don't remember any name of any one of those 30,000 people that were crucified? Why do you remember the one? Because only one became sin for us who knew no sin. Only one paid our sin debt. And what's his name? Jesus. And that's why we don't remember anybody else. He's the only one. Israel had seven feasts that they were to celebrate, mandated to celebrate. And I believe those seven feasts reveal to us God's redemptive plan for man. First one is the Feast of Passover, which really is the fulfillment in the crucifixion. It finds its fulfillment in the crucifixion for he's the Lamb of God that was slain. Uh, We know for Israel it was their deliverance out of slavery in Egypt. But for us, it's our deliverance out of the kingdom of darkness and translation to the kingdom of light. But that's what the Jewish community would be celebrating tonight would be the feast of Passover. And then we have the unleavened bread where sin is removed. And then we have the first fruits, which is the third one, third spring feast. And that is the resurrection that we celebrate, which will be this Sunday. And then 50 days later, we have the feast of Pentecost. So the four spring feasts have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so we don't have to celebrate those feasts because they are fulfilled in him. He is the fulfillment of them all. And by embracing him as Savior and Lord of our lives, praise God, we enjoy the antitype, not just the type. Which is greater? A picture of Jesus or Jesus himself right here? A little lamb that was slain or the lamb that was slain? Jesus the lamb, right? That's the fulfillment. And so that's what's most important. Now, between the spring feast and the fall feast, which are three left, we have what is called harvest time. And that's the period of time that we're living in right now, harvest time. And what are we supposed to be doing as children of God? Harvesting souls, proclaiming the gospel, preaching Jesus, sowing the seed into the hearts of people everywhere so that they can embrace him as savior and Lord of their lives. So we're bringing in the sheaves. You can say we're out there telling people about the love of Jesus so they can become children of God. Well, the next fall feast then, the next feast, there's three more left. The fall feast is the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets is when the high priest then shouts or or blows the the shofar. When he blows the shofar, everybody comes off the harvest field. This is harvest time, comes off the harvest field into Father's house. And of course, we know that's the rapture of the church. Anybody here longing for and waiting for the rapture of the church? We know he's going to come in clouds of glory. That's the Feast of Trumpets. That's going to take place. And then we have something that's kind of confusing to some people. And it was a little bit to me at one time when I finally asked, Lord, what's this mean? 
show me this. What's the next feast? The atonement. Wait a minute. People say that the three feasts in the fall have not been fulfilled yet. That's not true. The atonement has been fulfilled. Did Jesus not make atonement for our sins? And then I begin to ponder that. And I say, well, I know that the rapture hasn't taken place yet. At least I believe it hasn't. I hope it hasn't. Gee, we all be in pretty bad shape if it was, right? Well, see, the atonement has been accepted by both Jews and Gentiles who embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord. It's been fulfilled. But then he showed me it hasn't been accepted by Orthodox Jews. The blood of Jesus Christ, the atoning sacrifice, his blood that was shed for their redemption has not been accepted by Orthodox Jews. And those are Jewish feasts, right? So when will they accept his blood? In his second coming, when they see him coming and touch ground, touch down on the Mount of Olives and they'll see him and accept him and his atoning sacrifice, which is why they haven't been making atonement. They can't make atonement because there's no temple, etc., etc. There's no high priest. There's no red heifer. All those things don't exist anymore. Not till now. Then the last one is the Feast of Tabernacles, 1,000 years, millennial reign of Christ, where he's on earth with us and reigning as the Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and Prince of Peace. Those are the seven feast days. But tonight we celebrate which one? The first one, the Passover, and the crucifixion of our Lord. And we thank God. Well, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14 will be our opening text. Thank God for the Lamb who reconciled us to the Father by his precious blood. Here we have uh, Paul speaking. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Paul had a lot that he could have gloried in. Anybody remember your glory days of high school? Some remember their glory days of sports, academics. I mean, the list can go on and on. Well, he could glory in the fact that he was a Jew of the Jews, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He gloried in his intellect, his wisdom and knowledge and understanding that he had. His reputation among the people, how he just excelled above all others. He could glory in the fact that he saw Jesus on the Damascus road, blinded by the light, but yet his eyes being open to spiritual truth. And then he can glory in the fact that he was one of the best preachers who ever preached the gospel. And what about him being a missionary above all missionaries? All the things he did for Christ. He was caught up to the third heaven. He saw things he can't repeat. He could have gloried in all those wonderful things that pertain to his life. But you know what he said? Mm -mm. There's only one thing I glory in. And that's the cross. The cross of my Lord is what I glory in. What's he saying? I won't glory in my achievements, my successes, my accomplishments. I will only glory in what he's done. Aren't you glad we can glory in what he's done? It's a whole lot better, isn't it? In Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, this is from the New Living Translation of the Bible. Notice what it says. This is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom. Don't let the powerful boast in their power or the rich boast in their riches 
But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth and that I delight in these things. I, the Lord, have spoken. Can you boast that you know him tonight? Can you boast that he is your savior, your redeemer, your healer, your baptizer with Holy Ghost fire, your soon coming king and Lord? Amen. And that's what Paul was saying. My glorying is going to be in the cross of Jesus Christ and what he has done for me and not in myself. Thank God you're sitting out there and you know him. I can't think of more wonderful words to hear. I know him. Not about him. I know him. Do you know him? Praise God. Boast about that. Do you know his love? Boast about that. In the book of uh, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. In the days of the apostle Paul. The cross was nothing to boast about. The cross as you saw in the video here, was for hardened criminals. You could be a murderer. You could be a thief, an insurrectionist. And the list goes on and on. Now, Roman citizens were exempt from cru crucifixion. You realize that. But these people were not. And if you were crucified, in the minds of many, you were cursed of God. Look at Galatians 3 and verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. The Jewish community viewed anybody dying on a tree that way was cursed of God, cursed by God. Why would they look to someone who was cursed as a redeemer or as the Messiah or as a Savior? Look in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, verse 23. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. So anyone who died the death of crucifixion was considered to be someone who was accursed of God. So the tree was nothing. The cross was nothing for anyone to boast about there was something, as far as they were concerned, that meant you were accursed of God. There are different attitudes that existed even in the day of Paul when he preached and proclaimed the gospel about the cross. Look in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise... And will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that belief. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block. Unto the Greeks, foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God 
is stronger than men. So we can say, first of all, the Jews have viewed, it, viewed the cross as offensive. It was their stumbling block. It means they stumbled over it. The Greek word means to trip over something. Like a snare or a trap. So they see this happening to the Messiah. Supposedly, as he hangs on a tree, he can't be the Messiah. That's an impossibility. He's a curse of God. There's no way. So they cannot see beyond that thought. And they can't accept him as their Messiah. So they trip over that. They're ensnared by that. They refuse to accept that. And that holds true to this day for Orthodox Jews. Number two, you've got those that view it as foolishness. Also verse 23, look at verse 23 again. It says, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. The word foolish there, foolishness in the Greek is mora, moria. And the word that's used there in the Greek is where we get our word moron from. That's where it comes from. And so what he's saying is to the sophisticated, highly intelligent Gentile or Greek, the preaching of the cross is moronic foolishness. It doesn't make any sense. How can there be a transfer of righteousness from one person to the other because someone hangs on a tree and dies? They couldn't understand it. That's illogical. It's unreasonable. And as far as they're concerned, they don't stoop that low to think like that. And so he says, look, they stumbled over that as well. As a matter of fact, look in Acts chapter 17 and verses 16 through 18. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers and Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him and some said, listen to this, what will this babbler say? They viewed him as a babbler. Other some, he seemed to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. So you know that story in Acts 17, Paul at Athens, there he preached and he saw them worshiping the unknown God. So he preached Jesus. He preached his crucifixion. He preached his death, his burial, his resurrection and ascension on high. And they were floored by this. They couldn't understand all this. I'm sure he penetrated some hearts, but to the sophisticated Greek, it's foolishness. And you have to be a moron to believe the story. And that's how some people view it today. You're moronic if you believe in a resurrection from the dead. But then you've got the last group he talks about, and that's the called. Aren't you glad you're among the called? Look at verse 24. Oh, thank God we could be among the called, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, Christ noticed the power of God and the wisdom of God. The power of God, the preaching of the cross is the power of of God to destroy the works of darkness. So you see, it's an object of power 
and it's an object of wisdom. So thank God for the cross of Christ that defeats all the powers of darkness and enabled God to outwit the wisdom of the devil. The power of God, the wisdom of God. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to nothing or not. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So the preaching of the cross to those who believe is the power of God to defeat the enemy, to defeat sin, to defeat death, and also to resurrect life in those who believe. And it was the wisdom of God on display to outwit God. And really, we could preach a whole message just on that point right there. How God was much smarter than the devil. Anybody here believe that? Much smarter than the devil. You think about even when he came into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, when he came in riding on the, uh, the colt of a donkey. And how he came in during the time when they were looking over the sacrificial lambs and they were all trying to find out this lamb without spot, without blemish is a good one, send them in. This one has no spot, blemish, put them in. This one has a spot, get it out. Has to be without spot, has to be without blemish. And Jesus comes in and when he comes in, what do they say about him? Pilate says, I find no fault in him whatsoever. There's a parallel that's taking place here from Judaism and that's perspective and also the fulfillment of it, which is type, Christ being the antitype of the type. And so there's just so many decoys that God set forth in motion outwitting the devil himself had he known the wisdom of God he would have never crucified the Lord of glory he would have never had anyone put a hand on him but God was smarter than him how many of you know that when we become too familiar with something that that something can lose its impact or influence over a person's life you know that's one of the reasons why we don't have communion every time we gather together on every Sunday some do I realize that but we don't do that because you become so familiar with doing something, it becomes nothing more than a ritual. And it loses its impact and influence in a person's life. Just kind of take it for granted. You do it in rote. Have you ever just found yourself driving in a car and all of a sudden your car just goes a certain way and just, you're just doing it by habit? Mm-hmm. Sure. I do that sometimes and I find myself going somewhere the wrong way because uh, by habit I went the wrong way. But we, we just do that. Well, we understand then that some people have allowed the message of the cross to be desensitized to them. And truly in the day in which we live, that has happened. As a matter of fact, in one crusade in Africa, the person that was there to conduct the crusade was told by the leader who was there, don't preach the cross or the crucifixion of Christ. And he said, well, why? He said, the people don't want to hear about that bloody thing and all that stuff. And what they want to hear about is prosperity and health. Preach that, you'll get their attention. Well, you know what? I believe in prosperity and health, and I believe that God wants us to prosper and be in health as our souls prosper, don't you? But if you leave the cross out of it, you left the main crux of the message out of it. It's all because of the cross. It's all because of his sacrifice. It's all because of his death. It's all because of his blood. They don't want to hear a bloody religion. I'm sorry. Christianity is a bloody religion. It's a reality. He shed his blood for all of us. Today, 
we have people that view the cross, I have listed some things, as jewelry. You hear about a cross, and immediately their mind goes to jewelry. Something that you adorn the neck with, something that you adorn the ear with, it is a cross. And that's fine. We understand that. It's okay. But a lot of people that wear a cross have no idea what it signifies when they wear it around their neck. Then you have those that view it as a religious icon. In other words, there's a cross and they'll bow to worship the cross before the cross. But it's more than a religious icon. As a matter of fact, we should never get to the place that we put anything up as an idol or as an image that we worship, right? Then there are those that view it as an amulet containing some kind of or having some kind of supernatural powers. And I remember when I was young and growing up when cars had metal. Anybody remember those days when there was metal even on your dashboard? And you can get a magnetic cross and fix it on your dashboard and it would stick and stay there. Too much plastic today for that to happen, but you know, you know my point. And why was it there? It was almost superstitious, wasn't it? It's an amulet that has some kind of supernatural power, and if it's there, it's going to protect me from a wreck or etc. Or, like my grandmother, bless her heart and rest her soul, she would just hang it from her window in her bedroom because she believed that Mariette, a neighbor, was a witch. Truth be told, oh, you have no idea. I was told stories where Mariette would turn into a rat and then she would come in through the keyhole of the door. So at night, she put a, how about this one? She put a cross at the window and threw salt behind her bed. Cross and salt. Kept Mariette out. I don't know. But, but, how many of you know that it's easy for people like us in our generation to even think that that could be true, that if you put that thing on your car, it's going to protect you from something like a wreck or whatever. And that's very superstitious, wouldn't you say? Yeah. But it's harder for them to believe. Listen carefully. If you believe in your heart and say with your mouth, I dwell in the secret place of the Most High and I abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And I say, and then go on and quote that psalm and say, I'm protected from loss, harm, damage, injury, molestation, abuse, abduction, acts of terrorism, evil plagues, and accidents. To say that, to confess that, to declare that, to proclaim that, that, oh, you believe in that confession stuff. Oh, I'd rather be, believe in an amulet. Really? My Bible said death and life are in the power of the tongue. My Bible said by your words will be justified, by your words will be condemned. And my Bible says speak to your mountain and command it to go. Right? Isn't that what your Bible says? And Jesus said if you had faith, you would say to that sycamine tree, be thou plucked up by the root and it will obey you. And he said the mountain will remove if you speak to it and command it to remove and nothing will be impossible to you. Now when you preach like that, you're considered a heretic. And then they'll go back and pull out their amulet and put it on their window. I'm having fun. 
The next one is the one I really wanted to get to. A woman on Oprah. This was some years ago, as you know, when Oprah had her show. And the title of that particular show was Women Having Affairs with Married Men. Quite an episode, I guess. Well, there were women on the show that were having affairs with married men. And this one woman was talking about her long-standing affair that she was having that was making her so happy in life. And so, as Oprah sometimes would do, she opened up the floor and said, are there any questions or any statements that you would like to make? And one person stood up and she said, yes, I'd like to ask one thing. What about morality? What about morality? And so I don't misquote the lady. I wrote it down for you. She took offense saying, I'm a Christian. But my personal life and my religion don't interfere. I believe in a God who wants me to be happy. And if this man makes me happy, then God approves of the relationship. That's deception 101. You see, to her, the cross is nothing more than something that separates her personal life from her religious life. Sounds like separation of church and state, doesn't it? No such thing as separation of church and state. You realize that? Our beliefs are based on God's word. And our desire to be happy cannot go beyond God's word. If he says it's wrong, then what is it? If he says it's not right, then what is it? Absolutely. If he says it's immoral, then what is it? If he says it's righteous, then what is it? Absolutely. So, as you can see, even in the day in which we live, there are many views, and the cross is nothing more than some of these things to people. It's like they're desensitized to it. And just going to church is just basically just going to church, and that's your religious life. And when you step out the door, that's your personal life. And then you just live the way you want to live until you go back to church on Sunday, and then there you are once again. They don't interfere with one another. They don't intercede with one another. They are one with one another. Now what really matters is these views of the cross. Number one, Satan's view of the cross. You ready for it? It's a place of defeat and destruction and his coming doom and gloom. In the book of Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, we are told, for as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. May I ask you, did Jesus come? Did Jesus suffer? Did Jesus die? Was he raised from the dead? Did he show himself alive? Did he take his blood to heaven? Did he obtain eternal redemption for us? Did he come to undo, outdo, and overdo the works of the devil? Then guess what? The devil is defeated. In Jesus' name, he's defeated. And when we view that cross, he sees himself defeated. we got to remind him sometime, you are a defeated foe. You have no power over my life. Rise up, O believer. Look at the cross and glory in it. Glory in its success in defeating all the powers of darkness and reducing them to naught as the scripture says but look at Colossians chapter 2 as well and 
uh, it says thir thir 13 through 14, but it's 13 through 15. You could add that to your list. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, as he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, you better shout. Forgiven you all trespasses is something to shout about. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, took it out of the way and nailing it where? To his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Praise God. It's not just something to wear on your ear or around your neck. It is not just an icon that you bowed to. It is not an amulet that you put in your car. Praise God. It is nothing that separates your spiritual life from your personal life. It is the place where the devil was defeated by the son of the living God. And we should view it, praise God, that way. And glory in the fact that our enemy has been defeated. You say, how do I know if I'm desensitized to it? When you walk around your house and say, the devil's doing this to me. And the devil's doing that to me. And the devil, get out your cross. Not your salt. Can you say amen? And what are you going to do? You're defeated, devil. By the Son of God, my Savior, my Redeemer, I call you a defeated foe. Number two. How does God look at it? He views it as a place of substitution. Look in 1 Corinthians 15. It's a place of substitution. Verses 3 and 4, I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. We believe that. Look at the next one, 2 Corinthians 5.21. This verse is said to be all-inclusive with regard to the entire teaching of the gospel. You ready for it? On that cross... God the Father made him the Son to be sin for us. He made the sinless Son of God to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we would be made the righteousness of God in Christ. That is called substitution. God the Father made Jesus the Son to be sin for us. Somebody became sin for you. Has someone ever up, walked up to you at a time, maybe you tried to maybe uh, witness to that person and said to that person, you know, you really need to be born again, need to be saved? to come to Jesus or whatever. Maybe you're talking about their conversion and that sort of thing and they look at you and just say, are you telling me? And they just start spouting off all this stuff that the only people that are going to heaven are born again people, etc., etc., etc. You know what you do? You calmly just ask them certain questions. Like, hey, wait a minute. Have you ever done anything wrong? Uh, yeah. So you're saying you've sinned? Uh, yeah. Did you ever tell a lie? Uh, yeah. Did you ever steal anything? Maybe when you were younger? Hmm. I may have done that once or twice. Without even saying anything that would be considered condemning them. You've already identified them as, in their own admission, a lying, stealing, sinning individual. By their own admission. Well, that means then if you did all that, you're a sinner. I guess so. 
Well, I've read my Bible. I don't find anywhere where anybody else can take away your sin but the Son of God. He's the only one. He made him to be sin for you who knew no sin that you would become the righteousness of God in Christ because you can't save yourself by being good enough to do so. Amen? And then what about Isaiah 53? It's substitutionary. Aren't you glad that when he sees you, he sees Jesus taking your sin from you and for you? Look at Isaiah 53. Surely he had borne our griefs, our sicknesses. He carried our pains, our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, not the Roman lictor, and afflicted. But he was wounded, not for himself, but for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we have healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. It is substitutionary. Praise God. So you know what? Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes on the cross. Don't glory in your achievements or accomplishments. Glory in his. And so when the enemy comes along to try to condemn you because maybe you said this, did this, or didn't do this, or didn't say that, stop right there and just say, I'm not going to glory in my performance. I'm glorying in the performance of my Savior, my Redeemer, the Son of God, who on that cross defeated you, and there's no guilt, there's no condemnation in my life. Praise God, because I glory in what he did, not what I. I'm forgiven. I'm redeemed. I'm delivered by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, look at the last one humans what's our perspective what's our view how do we see it ourselves well first of all we see it as the place of redemption look in the book of hebrews chapter 9 verse 12 neither by the blood of goats and calves but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us where did he shed that blood on calvary and what did he do with that blood? Obtained eternal redemption for every single one of us. And only his blood qualified. So it's a place of redemption. Also it's a place of reconciliation. Which means to bring us back to a place of peace with God. Look at Colossians chapter 2. And having made peace through the blood of his cross. By him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven or you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you to present you a worm in the dust an unworthy moronic fool to present you holy unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. How does God view you? Holy, unblameable, unreprovable. Think about that for a while. Jesus tells the Father, there's Bill. I present him to you, Father, holy, unblameable, unreprovable. I washed him in my blood. That's how we should view the cross. And what else? We're loved. We're loved. Look at John 3, 16, if you don't know that verse. God so loved the world. Would you say this with me? God so loved me that he sent his son for me to die on Calvary's cross so I could have eternal life. 
It's a revelation of the love of God. Look at John 15, 13. Greater love has no man than this. Say this with me. I could never be loved greater than this. That my Savior laid down his life for me on Calvary's cross. Never say ever that God doesn't love you or me. It's proven. It's done. It's completely performed in the person of Christ. And we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. And then also, it's a place that reveals our value and our worth. How valuable are you? What's your worth? Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. How valuable are you? You realize that your value was established long before you were born and I was born? For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot or without blemish and without spot who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. For who? For you. Your value and your worth goes beyond any amount this world has to offer the precious blood of Jesus Christ is what redeemed us so that's what reveals your value and your worth and then also it reveals justification it's a place of justification look at Romans chapter 3 for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God now we all know that verse don't we being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. We can't work for our salvation. We can't keep the Mosaic law for salvation. He says all you got to do is believe that Jesus did it for you. On the cross he suffered and died for you. He fulfilled the law like he said he would fulfill the law. He fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant with all of its added Mosaic law and Ten Commandments. He fulfilled it all for every single one of us. And that leads us to the place of what? Unblameable, holy, unreprovable in the sight of God. Justified, which means just as if we had never sinned. It's just as if you've never sinned and I've never sinned. And that's how God views us. So once again, if guilt and condemnation try to come on you by the enemy, what do we say? Look to the cross. Praise God, I am justified in the sight of God. And look at this next one. So important. This woman from Oprah needs to hear this. It means... Our commitment to him. Our surrender to him. Look at Matthew 16. This is true Christianity. This is Christianity 101. That will take us all the way through. Graduation. From the highest place there is to graduate. Then said Jesus to his disciples. If any man will come after me. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross. Luke says daily. And follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever shall lose his life. For my sake shall find it. What's a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? So this is a place of surrender. This is not a place that this is my religion. 
And this is my personal life over here. And the twain shall never, shall never meet. That's not what it is. It's this is my commitment. This is my surrender. Not my will be done, but your will be done. And that's the message of the cross. True surrender. And look at Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. This should be our anthem, every one of us. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Thank God. Because of the sacrifice of our Lord, because of his crucifixion, we've been crucified with him, and God views us that way. Why? So we can surrender all and live for him. In conclusion, look at Romans 1, 16, 17. We all have a choice to make. We can glory in our accomplishments or our achievements and our performance. Or we can glory in what Jesus has done for us. It says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Now notice this. To the Jew first and to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live how? By faith. The Jews wanted what? A sign. And the Greeks wanted what? It's not a trick question. The Jews wanted a sign. And the Greeks wanted what? Wisdom. Did Jesus show the Jews any signs? <clears throat> did, he not, did they not say themselves in Mark 6? Didn't they say, um, who is this man and what miracles are wrought by his hands? And what wisdom does he have? Where did it come from? Then he's saying in John 11, verse 47, everybody's being drawn to him for all the works that he's doing. And when they finally went to say to him, if you are the son of God, show us a sign. And he said, no sign will be shown to you except the one. As Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man in the heart of the earth. Did he show them the signs? But they were blinded to the signs. On that cross, he died for them, their Messiah, and they didn't recognize him. But on the third day, he arose, victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And what about the Greeks? They wanted to see Jesus. They heard about his wonderful works and they wanted to see him. They wanted to glean light from him. They wanted to learn uh, all the dynamics between, be behind walking on water. They were concerned about salvation. They wanted to learn all these principles and these laws by which he could do all the things that he did. Beloved, there's enough scripture that satisfies every person's desire to know Jesus. Nothing more impacting than this.